I'm going to, to read it tonight in the Revised Standard Version. <clears throat> Colossian Letter, Chapter 1, Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 24. And now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the divine office which was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man mature in Christ. For this I toil, striving with all the energy, energy which he mightily inspires within me. For I want you to know how greatly I strive for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged as they are knit together in love, to have all the riches of assured understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with beguiling speech. Although I am absent in body, yet am I with you in spirit, 
rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. As therefore you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now this evening I want to take an especial study This is more of a message in some ways than a study Um, I have entitled it Hallmarks of God's Genuine Working And uh, the reason why I believe this message is very much on my heart is that we are living in days in which very much is happening of course when you are tied more locally you don't always hear of what is happening but an awful lot is happening and I'm not talking about political things I'm talking about spiritual things and all over the world in the Far East and in the Far West and here in Europe much is happening amongst God's people. In some ways, it's quite extraordinary. There seems to be the most amazing things happening in some parts of the vineyard. And um, in the midst of it all, there is a very great need to discern what is of God and what is not of God. I believe that not only is much happening, has happened and is happening, I believe that very much is going to happen. And I believe that we will see the Lord working in quite a new way in many lives, quite shortly. And therefore I'm quite sure that it is a vital necessity that we should be able to distinguish what is of God and what is not of God. There is a quite clear line, but sometimes, as is quite obvious, an enemy camouflages his working to appear exactly like the true work. This is a, this is a method of war, and uh, we have a terrible foe, and he's not a silly foe, There are Christians who always seem to think that the devil is dumb. Uh, I fear they must think he's as dumb as themselves. I don't know. But the devil is not dim nor dumb. He knows exactly what he is doing. He is a supremely intelligent being. And he knows exactly how to undo God's children. And he knows exactly how to simulate God's works, how to somehow or other counterfeit things so that they appear to be the real. Now, <clears throat> it is therefore of tremendous importance that we should know how we can distinguish in our own lives and in our own circumstances when the Spirit of God is working and when he is not. How foolish we all are. 
So often we swallow what is not of God and we have very real questions about what is of God. This is the thing you find out in experience so often and therefore we need to know more clearly how we can tell. Now, I'd like to turn you to a number of scriptures. And first of all, I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 uh, from, and verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but prove the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, you see, we are told expressly that this um, so common Christian naivety which swallows anything that's called Christian and anything which seems to use the word of God is uh, quite wrong. We are not to be naive. We are not to be gullible. We are not to be credible. We are to prove the spirits whether they be of God. That is this word prove. In the authorized version, I believe the word is try. Try the spirits. A good word. Try them. And uh, the Revised Standard Version, I think, has put the word in test. Test the spirits whether they be of God. Don't just swallow everything you hear. Don't believe everything you see. Test it. Test it. Make sure that it is of God. Uh, 1 John and chapter 2 and verse 27 or verse 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them that would lead you astray. And as for you... The anointing which ye received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that anyone teach you, but as his anointing teacheth you concerning all things, and is true, and is no lie, and even as it taught you, ye abide in him. There is an anointing given to every child of God, and it is part of our education not only to know that the anointing is ours, but to take it by faith and to learn to distinguish the promptings and the education of the anointing within. We need no teacher to continually tell us this is right, that is wrong. You shouldn't do that, you should do that. Every true child of God, as he grows in the grace of God and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ should be had by the anointing of the Spirit within them a witness to what is of God and what is not of God. And our education, our spiritual education is very much bound up with learning to um, be sensitive to the witness of the Holy Spirit, not the witness of our soul, which can deceive us utterly, but the witness of the Spirit of God within our spirit. Then if you will turn to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, these scriptures are underlining the need for discernment. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, 
Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now here we have it again. Prove all things. Try all things. Test all things. Don't quench the spirit. Don't in your fear of the enemy working, in your fear of the counterfeit, go to the other extreme and say, I won't have anything, I won't touch anything, I won't believe anything. Uh, this is to quench the spirit and to despise prophesying, but prove all things. In other words, test them carefully uh, by the word of God and by the witness of the spirit of God. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse uh, 15. Now, this is not an easy verse at all. And I'm going to read it in the Amplified. I'll read it first in the Standard Version, and then I'll uh, read it in the Amplified. Well, in the standard version, it, it is like this. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, and he himself is judged of no man. The word is examines all things, discerns all things. Now, this is the way the Amplified puts it. I think it's rather good. But the spiritual man tries all things. That is, he examines, investigates, inquires into, questions and discerns all things, yet is himself to be put on trial and judged by no one. He can read the meaning of everything, but no one can properly discern or appraise or get an insight into him. Um, this is very true of spiritual people, really spiritual people. I'm not, I don't mean that pseudo-spirituality that wraps the mystery around itself deliberately. But I mean true spirituality is always a mystery. A person seems so human and yet there's something else, something extra to them which you can never quite put your finger on and you can never quite track down. This is spirituality. It's almost impossible uh, to, to examine it in one way. And yet it says, he that is truly spiritual, a deep work of God has taken place in him. The division between soul and spirit has taken place. In that man, there is uh, an adult attitude to everything. He tries all things. He sifts all things. He investigates all things. And then, uh, if you would turn to Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, 7. <clears throat> Be not ye therefore partakers with them, that is the children or sons of disobedience. For ye were once darkness, but are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 10 proving what is well-pleasing unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather even reprove them. 
Here again we have it proving what is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now this proving means that sometimes we make a few mistakes. We prove what is well-pleasing to the Lord. By certain ways we find we have the light of God upon us. We have the sunshine of God upon us. It's the fruit of light. Other ways we find we lose something. We've got to forsake those ways. We've got to let them go. There are two other scriptures that are rather dark and solemn, but I think perhaps we ought to just look at them. Is one is in uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 4 and verse 1. It's a rather dark and solemn word, but it's one that's not often looked at. But the Spirit saith expressly that in later times some shall fall away from the faith, giving heed to <coughs> seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. <coughs> Pardon. You know, it's a very strange phrase, doctrines of demons. In other words, it's possible for the satanic powers to somehow or other in the church of God introduce teaching and other things which is not of God at all, but is the very doctrines of demons and is a seducing spirit, terrible, terrible in its solemnity and therefore ought to put the fear of God into us all that we swallow not everything but we try things and discover what is of God. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2. I'll just wait. That's wrong. It must be another verse. Oh yes, it's 22. It's 1 Thessalonians. Oh no, we've read that. I'm sorry. No, I can't find that. I shall have to find it again. It's quite wrong. It's not 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2 verse 2, is it? Is it? Yes, that's right, I'm so sorry. To the end that you be not quickly shaken from your mind, nor yet be troubled either by spirit or by word or by epistles from us. Now, I would have thought it was quite sensible if Paul had written and said, to the end that you be not quickly shaken from your mind, nor yet be troubled by word or by epistles from us. But it seemed very strange that he added either by spirit or by word or by epistle as from us. So here we have to recognize what we find in Ephesians chapter 6. We are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but we are wrestling against principalities and powers, against world rulers of darkness, against hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenlies. And uh, we have got to put the whole armor of Christ on uh, if we're going to stand in this day of battle. And we must learn to distinguish so that we can say, we are not ignorant of his devices. This is the tragedy of God's children so often that we are ignorant of the evil one's devices. Well, I would like in the light of all this to say that it seems to me there is that which is holy of God. It begins with God and it goes on with God, and it goes right through to the objective of God. In all God's workings, 
there is that which he initiates, which he leads us into, and which not only do we experience in an initial way, but in a progressive way, and by the grace of God we are enabled to go right through to God's objective in bringing us into that experience. We also have to say that there is that which begins with God and goes on with God and then gets corrupted and compromised and then sidetracked. And often it will become a thing in itself or it will become just a memory around which our whole life is built and centered, something that happened years and years ago. And somehow the very thing that was meant to bring us into a new, greater sphere and realm in the Lord has become the very thing in the end which ties us and stunts us and paralyzes us. It's another possibility. There is another possibility that there is something which begins with God but ends with Satan. It is possible for something to begin with God and then through our sin or our foolishness, or our foolhardiness, it ends with Satan. And many are the people who have had a real experience of God and found, unfortunately, that it has led into very dark and terrible ways. And there is, of course, something which never began with God. It is wholly counterfeit. Now, it is in this realm and I am not talking this evening, and I would like to say this just in case anyone misunderstands me of any particular experience. I am talking about hallmarks of God's genuine working. I was going to uh, call it uh, hallmarks of God's works, uh, so that we might understand that in all the various experiences of the fullness of Christ, of Calvary or of Pentecost, that we might be brought into, there are certain clearly distinguishing hallmarks of what is genuinely of God. Now here is the realm then, and uh, what we've got to ask ourselves is this, are there any characteristics or hallmarks of that which is truly of God? Are there any points that we could underline which we could all ask the Lord to keep alive in our hearts and uh, memories that would help us when the Lord meets us, or if he has met us, that what is of God may be preserved, and that we might go right through into the fulfillment of the Lord's objective in bringing us into any new and deeper experience of his grace. Well, I think there are. And I want this evening just simply to underline five um, uh, hallmarks of God's genuine working in whatever way it may be. The first I have called Christ-centeredness. Christ-centeredness. You turn to Colossians 1 and verse 18. We read that in all things he might have the preeminence that in all things he might have the preeminence nothing else is to share the supreme position of our Lord Jesus Christ nothing I repeat it again nothing absolutely nothing 
No experience must detract from the supreme position of the Lord Jesus Christ. No thing must detract from the uh, supreme position of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to have the preeminence in all things. Now this is utterly important and it is one of the surest hallmarks of the genuine working of God. Both Father, God the Father and God the Spirit glorify God the Son. This is the surest avenue into blessing. To know that anything that happens to us any experience we have should lead us into a new Christ-centeredness and a new Christ-consciousness. If any experience, even within days, begins to take me away from Christ and bring other things into view, I can be absolutely sure that something which has begun of God is ending with the devil or is being corrupted and compromised in such a way that I am being taken away from the supreme object of all God's working and purpose. I remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, no one else. And it is to him that we are being presented as a bride. The Spirit of God himself is presenting us to the bridegroom not to himself, to the bridegroom. And this is what we find in John chapter 16 and verse 16, where we are told in these words, John chapter 16 verse 14, He that is the Holy Spirit shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall declare it unto you. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and he takes of the things of Christ and he shows them to us. Oh, the tenderness and the sensitiveness of the Holy Spirit. How the Holy Spirit keeps himself, as it were, in the background and how always he presents to us something of the beauty and the greatness and the glory and the power and the fullness of Jesus Christ. Always he, as it were, detracts from himself and attracts to the Lord Jesus Christ. Always he is riveting our attention upon the Lord Jesus. It doesn't matter in what experience it is. Every single experience is in the end an avenue to a new Christ-centeredness and consciousness. It means that we magnify and glorify the Lord Jesus in a way that we were never able to do before. We have met the Lord. And all we can say is that the beauty of the Lord has consumed us. This is the hallmark of God's genuine workings. In chapter 15 of John and verse 26 we read it again. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. 
And when the Lord Jesus Christ said, Tarry in Jerusalem until ye are clothed with power from on high, he said, And ye shall be witnesses of me. Christ-centeredness is the hallmark of God's genuine working. How we need to see this. Because the devil is very much at work. If he cannot counterfeit something, and praise God, I believe that many of us, if not the majority of us, I would that it were all of us, were, uh, were not ignorant of the evil one, but able straight away to hide in the Lord, and therefore be saved from counterfeit. Yet it is still possible for a, for a true work of God in our hearts to become corrupted, so that suddenly we start to be led away from Christ to things, and to experience sin, and to its. It has done me so much. It has meant so much to me. It, 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 it. What is it? It is the surest sign that the glory is departing when we start to talk of it instead of him. Christ is the one that the Holy Spirit and the cross, whether it's Calvary or whether it's Pentecost, it is to Christ that the roads lead. And in, in all of heaven, in all of eternity, every avenue, as it were, like one great star, converges upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb slain in the throne. Now this is a way in which we can tell. Anything that leads us away from Christ, which compromises his supreme position, which somehow or other makes him share his glory, with something else is missing the mark. It is possible for our eyes to be transferred from him to things. And you know, if I may say so, using a rather um, uh, crude illustration, there are wild beasts in Africa who know that the easiest way to get a meal is to watch an animal giving birth. And in those moments of, of the pangs of birth, to seize the newborn child, the newborn animal. So it is with the devil. It is an interesting picture in Revelation chapter 12 that the devil, that old dragon, waits while the woman gives birth to the man-child to swallow up the man-child as he is born. So it is with the devil in every one of our lives. He waits whenever something new is coming to birth. Whenever something new is taking place in our lives, the devil's there waiting, if he can, to swallow up what is of God. And so we have to be on our guard that, uh, that it is to the Lord Jesus Christ that we uh, are to um, move. He is the center of it all. <clears throat> God's supreme object in every experience, I don't care what it is, in whatever new experience you and I may come into, God's supreme object is that Christ may be all in all. That you will find in Colossians 3, verse 11. 
where we are told that Christ may be all in all, everything in everyone, all in all. Or Ephesians 1 and verse 23, where we are told that he, it is Christ who fills all in all. So, I think we must understand this wonderful truth that um, Christ's centeredness is one of the hallmarks of a true work of God. And then again, a second of the hallmarks, I would say, is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. If we turn to Galatians chapter 5, and verse 22, Galatians 5, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And Matthew 7, you turn to Matthew 7, Verse 15, <clears throat> Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. By their fruits ye shall know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but the corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Here is a distinguishing, a second distinguishing mark of God's true work. Now, I want to say one word. Uh, of encouragement as well here. Uh, we are not saying that immediately someone has an experience, all the fruit of the Spirit should appear. Uh, there is a natural time sequence between planting and, uh, and fruit. But we are saying this, that if it does not come immediately, which we would not expect, there ought to be soon a, a Something apparent that betrays the tree. If you and I had an argument in the winter about a tree in the garden, whether it was a pear tree or whether it was an apple tree, there is one absolutely certain way we can settle our argument if we can wait long enough. And that is we will wait for six months until the spring. And we shall know by the fruit who was right. You may argue till you're blue in the face that it was a pear tree, and I might argue till I'm purple in the face that it was an apple tree. But in the end, it will be abundantly and apparently clear to everyone whether it was a pear tree or an apple tree. So it is with every true experience of God. Sooner or later, it gives itself away. It betrays which kind of tree it is. Because whatever experience we have of the Lord, in the end, the key to it all is Christ-likeness. 
And if a man or a woman does not become Christ-like, there is something in, we must say, basically wrong somewhere. Now, there are many experiences we can have of Christ. I have often said that the work of Christ at Calvary and Pentecost is fourfold. And within this fourfold magnificent work of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are a tremendous variety of experiences by which we enter into the fullness and life and nature of God in Christ. But the end of everything is that you and I may be conformed to the image of God's Son. This was God's purpose from before eternity. It says it in Romans 8 and verse 28 and 29 and 30. It says we were foreordained that we might become firstborn sons, that we might be, that we might be um, uh, conformed to the image of Christ. This then is God's work. And sooner or later there should be fruit. And the fruit should be love, joy, peace, Christ as our love, Christ as our joy, Christ as our peace, Christ as our meekness, Christ as our self-control, Christ as our faith, and so on and so on. This fruit should be apparent in our life. All else, I don't care what it is, all else which may appear to be so great, in the moment of time it may be so so much excitement within it, so much drama in it, so much sensation in it, so much that is apparent in it, so much activity, it will all go into the fire. And only that which is gold, the gold and the silver and the precious stone of Christ's life and nature will come through on the other side. Oh, we don't believe in the purgatory, but we do believe that every man's work will be tried so as by fire. Whatever that means, here or there. There comes a point when every one of us, our lives, will be exposed to the fire of God and it will be tested finally. And all that may have appeared to be so marvellous and so wonderful, when I think of some of the things that go by the name of Christian today, some of the things that are taking people in, terrible hoaxes, and not only hoaxes, but terrible mixtures, how much of it will come through the fire? One question is, how much will really come through? We cannot go by appearances. And we must not be wrongly uh, uh, judges in the sense that we set ourselves up to judge other men. But one question for ourselves. We must learn this simple lesson that the hallmark of all God's genuine work in the end is Christ-likeness. If there is no progress in becoming Christ-like, if there is no fruit of the Spirit in our lives, then we must question as to the source of the tree. What kind of tree is it? You don't gather grapes uh, off uh, thistles and so on, as the Lord Jesus said. Um, a tree brings forth the fruit that is within its life, 
And so it must be with any true experience. Look at it like this, as I have often said to you, a daffodil bulb has daffodil life and therefore it flowers into a daffodil. It can't do anything else. It can do nothing else but obey the order of its life, the law of the, of the life within it. And so it is if you receive more of Christ, if you in any experience should receive more of Christ, then that life that you receive of Christ must of necessity flower and blossom and fruit in you. There must be something more of him. And if there is not something more of him, we must question whether it was the life of Christ you received. So we must underline this. Then there's a third hallmark I would like to mention. It is what I've called a practical realization in one's life and experience of what is ours in Christ. Shall I repeat that again? A practical realization in our life, in one's life and experience of what is ours in Christ. Ephesians 3. So look at Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Unto him, mark it, that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Then if you will turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, chapter 2 verse 3, about, yes, right, chapter 2 verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Here is this wonderful promise. Now, says Paul, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. And here we have it again. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now if you turn Hebrews 3, verse 14, for we are become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence firm unto the end. And chapter 4, verse 1, Let us fear, therefore, lest haply a promise being left of entering into his rest. And you know, you could say for his rest, his finished work, if you like. It may help you if when you read this word rest here in chapter 3 and 4, you put in finished work of Christ being left of entering into his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed we've had good tidings preached unto us, even as also they, but the word of hearing did not profit them, because it was not united by faith with them that heard. For we who have believed do enter into that rest. Verse 11. Let us therefore give diligence to enter into that rest that no man fall after the same example of disobedience. This third 
This third hallmark of God's genuine working is that we should have a practical experience, a practical, no, a practical realization in our life and experience of what God has provided for us in Christ. In other words, let me put it like this. To be living in the good of Calvary and Pentecost, actually experiencing what is ours in Christ, is a sure sign of God's genuine working. If a person really knows what it is to be justified, not up here, but here, they know what the blood of Christ has done for them. They know in their heart that their sin has been cancelled out by the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are living in the good of the justifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they're living in the good of it. They're experiencing every time the devil comes to them and accuses them, they turn him, not to themselves, not to their goodness, so supposed goodness, but they turn the devil to the work of Christ. They turn him to Calvary. You see, it's not up here. It's not in a book. It's not even in the Bible. It's in here. It's coming to there. Something has happened within. And then again, we could say that if a person uh, has really experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, they have power over sin. They have power over self. They have power to witness. They have power to function in the body of Christ. They are living in the good of the baptism of the Spirit of God. It's not that they've read it in books, or they've got certain conceptions about it, but they have seen with the eye of faith what is theirs by Pentecost, and they have entered into it. Or again, it might be that here is another person and they know they've been crucified with Christ. That old body of death they've been dragging round with them, cuddling and mollycoddling and dressing up and putting nice Christian words and phrases into its mouth. They've been doing their best to resurrect it from the dead somehow or other to make it a good Christian. They've carried it around with them for years and then all of a sudden one day they saw that it had been crucified with Christ and buried with him. And they said farewell. <laughs> and you know that person that person may seem or sometimes be almost a hypocrite because they're never very bothered about themselves anymore there's a sense in which they've said farewell farewell they know exactly what they're made of they know the extent of their wickedness they know just how ignoble and base they are and they know it's all been crucified with Christ and there has come the most wonderful deliverance from self so that self is on one side of a gulf and the new man is on the other. And the new man can look back and say, well, well, there you are on the other side of the gulf. What a wonderful thing it is to be cut free from the dead body that we carry around with us. That old man, that old nature. But that 
isn't in a book. You won't get that by reading Andrew Murray and Mrs. Penn Lewis and Dr. F. B. Meyer and F. J. Hugel and many others. You'll get to it not only by reading, but when it comes into your heart by revelation through the Holy Spirit and by faith, by faith you take the step and you discover that you've been crucified with Christ. Well, there is also what we call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful thing it is when one day you wake up to the simple fact that the Spirit of God, God, the Holy Spirit, is not somewhere up there, nor in the Far East, nor in the Far West, but has come to live in your fragile body of clay. The Holy Spirit of God within you. And he's there as the Vice-Regent of God to, as it were, with all authority from God, to take over operations in your life, and really, as you are obedient, as you walk after the Spirit, as you're led of the Spirit, so to be changed into the image of Christ. You can read that in the Bible, but it doesn't mean a thing. Oh, how many Christians know all about the Holy Spirit, but they have no inward knowledge that he's within Therefore they live lives that are defeated and unhappy and dark and miserable and vacuous. The Holy Spirit is there, but they've never woken up to it. They've never seen it with the eye of faith. Well, now you see a practical realization in our life and experience of what is ours in Christ is a hallmark of all God's work. Now, I'm not saying it all comes at once. It doesn't. I have yet to meet the person where this has all happened in one go. Little by little we possess the land, step by step as the soles of our feet go down. You know, I used to say to people that when the soles of the priests touched the water of Jordan, in God honouring his word, the waters of Jordan parted and the people of God went over. But you know, when I was in Eshe, someone was pointing out this scripture and I looked again and to my amazement it said, when their feet dipped into the waters of Jordan, their souls had to go through the chilly waters down onto the riverbed. But when they touched the riverbed, God honoured his word and the waters parted. So what I often used to say, the devil said to them, you'll get your feet wet, was quite right. They would get their feet wet. But once the soles of their feet touched the ground, the promised ground, the promised land of God under the river, God honoured his word and across they went on dry land. And so it is with us. It doesn't all happen at once. There's a crossing of the Jordan, there's Jericho's and there are Ai's and there are many other places in the land um, all round that have to be taken bit by bit, stage by stage, battle after battle with many a defeat as well. But nevertheless, every time a Christian, a child of God is living in the good of something which is theirs in Christ, it is a mark that it is God's genuine working. The devil's far too frightened to give any child of God the power of the Spirit. When people say to me they're frightened of the Holy Spirit because they're frightened that it might be counterfeit, there is a kind of power that men bang their chests and say, I am, I am, and I can do this and so on. This is undoubtedly a counterfeit work. Because God's power is always manifested in human weakness. It's a principle. And when anyone's big and mighty and strong and powerful, you can be sure 
that there's something wrong somewhere. And maybe God is there, and maybe God is blessing. But one day, that work will be tried, so as by fire. Know this, said the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, every man's work shall come into judgment. So rest. People get terribly anxious, you know, about things. Oh, dear, 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 how dreadful. Why does the Lord bless that? Why does he do that? Why does he save people there? He shouldn't do it. You see, after all. But you know, the Lord rests back and says, it's all right. You have it your own way. If you want to go the way that is costly and trying, you'll come out with gold and silver and precious stone in the fire. But if you want to spend your life as you will, you can do so. But know this and rest in it. That in the end, every single man and every single work of man will come into judgment, says the old preacher. And it's true. Absolutely true. So, I would like to say, does it really matter how we come into a realisation of what is ours in Christ? I know that the communists say uh, that the end justifies the means. I wouldn't like to apply that. But what I am saying is this, that I am quite sure that there is no need to quibble about uh, the variety of experience, about whether this experience is right as against that experience, whether this method is right against that, or this teaching against that. We're often coming down to details. The point is this, if I see a life that is filled with the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and filled with the life and nature of Christ and obviously glorifying and magnifying the Lord, I'm only too thankful. I don't mind if they came into it by an experience of holiness or crucifixion with Christ or a second blessing, third blessing or a fourth blessing or entire sanctification or, or even sinless perfection. I don't care how they got into it. So long as they're in it, that's all that worries me. I really, it is dreadful to say it, and I know it upsets some people. But the point is that the Lord seems to have a variety of ways of leading his children. Woe betide any man or woman who starts to somehow or other reduce it all and tabulate it and confine it and then put it into a mould and say, now then, every single one of you has got to come this way. And if you don't, there's going to be trouble for you inevitably there's trouble for them, spiritually. They end up with a clearly tabulated, uh, confined and defined experience when all the life has gone out of it. It is not possible to do this with spiritual things. You cannot be clinical and technical about spiritual, even about conversion and birth. There are basic principles that we must adhere to and understand but there, there are so many ways that God brings people in. And sometimes, if you're honest, you stand amazed and almost aghast at just how the Lord saves people. And you say to yourself, but he shouldn't have done that. I heard of someone who was saved to a mother superior in a convent the other, other week. And of course, I knew many of my dear Christian friends who would say, oh, dear, dear. Dear the Lord shouldn't have done a thing like that. Mother Superior, there shouldn't be such a thing. Shouldn't be such a thing as a convent anyway. But I mean, there the wonderful thing was that the Lord used a Mother Superior who evidently knew the Lord to lead some seeking soul to Christ. 
And I must say, I praised the Lord with a full heart and shocked one or two people, but that doesn't matter. The point is, if there's one soul in the kingdom through a mother superior, well, hallelujah, that's all I can say. And I'm sure the Lord looks at it like that as well. The great thing is that we should be in the good of what Christ has done. And I would like to put it like this. Shall we, because we have quibbles, or we've got some preconception or bias, shall we cut ourselves off and live vacuous, empty, powerless lives? Just because we've got some preconception and bias? And criticize and judge some who we can manifestly see have really, who really know the Lord in an experimental way. No, not at all. We must come in to all that there is of Christ. We must seek the Lord for wisdom and understanding. And above all, we must make sure that it is God. That's the thing that matters. That it is a genuine work of God in our lives. And I'm sure that the Lord does have ways of working. I think there is, as I have said, a great danger when we have had any experience of the Lord, whatever it is, of tabulating it and making it a kind of regulation order for everyone. Let me underline that once more. I think we have so many varieties. Let me just run through a few of them. There's perfect love. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. This is the name for a certain experience. Perfect love. It's what Charles and John Wesley experienced in all the early Methodists. They called it perfect, perfect love. And then there's holiness, the great holiness work. My word, just think. There's Frances Ridley Havergal. She didn't believe in holiness at all, of that kind. She believed in Keswick teaching. But you know, you've got Frances Ridley Havigal writing her wonderful hymns and you've got dear old Mrs. Morris on the other side of the Atlantic who believed in holiness up to the hilt and writing her wonderful hymns. Here are two women who see things quite differently and both have a real experience of God. Now, how do you explain that? Are we to say that Mrs. Morris was wrong? Are we to say that she was uh, seduced by the devil, by some evil spirit? What are we to say? Or are we to look at her life and see in her life the fruit of the Spirit of God and look in Francis Ridley Havergal's life and see the fruit of the Spirit of God? And are we not to glorify the Lord that by his own ways and means he has brought both by different ways in one sense in detail to the same end? And then again we have what we call entire sanctification. We have sinless perfection. Such a man as Samuel Chadwick believed in sinless perfection. He believed in such a work of the Spirit of God that it was possible to live without sin. Isn't it amazing? Put all Samuel Chadwick and Andrew Murray together and they'd probably fight on details. Even though he was sinlessly perfect, um, he'd probably come to blows over on the question of teaching. Because Andrew Murray believed firmly that there was sin, the remnants of sin remained in our body to our last day. And called it a heresy to believe in anything else. But Samuel Chadwick was as godly, if you've ever read his life or his ministry, was as godly as Andrew Murray. Here are two men. Both came into a Christ-likeness. They had different conceptions and all in detail. And yet in the end, they came into a new and deeper experience. I don't believe in sinless perfection. 
And I must say that if someone who does has really come into an experience of the Lord, well, I only have to stand back and thank God for that. We have what we call the fullness of the Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit. And we have the baptism of the Spirit. The people who believe in the baptism of the Spirit are invariably much against those who believe in the fullness of the Spirit. Because the evidences and the method are quite different. Keswick believes in the fullness of the Spirit. Pentecostals normally believe in the baptism of the Spirit. Here you have a great conflict. And yet who can say that some men are not in the good of the baptism of the Spirit of God, though they have not had what they call the experience of the baptism? I take a man like Brother Barthing, who is very much against the teaching of the baptism of the Spirit. And yet, who in his own ministry and life manifests the power of the baptism of the Spirit. How do you explain that? And how do you explain when I was once in Norway last autumn, a very big meeting, and at the end of it so many received the baptism of the Spirit, and the pastor came out to me at the inquiry room and he said, I've never seen quite so many having such a deep baptism in this place. And he said, praise, and I said, praise the Lord, but I hadn't had the experience they were having. How do you explain that? Well, there are so many queries and so many question marks we have about these things. But the great thing is this. We go on with the Lord to be in the good of what there is of Christ. Not one of these experiences is enough. We need not only to be crucified with Christ, we need to be indwelt by the Spirit. We need not only to be indwelt by the Spirit, we need the power of the Spirit of God. All this we need. We can come into slavery to partial truth or one-sided truth in such a way that we are forced to become dishonest. We are forced. I find it a, so sad so, so terrible when I come up against Christians who are being forced to be dishonest because they're slaves to some doctrine. I give you an example. Last year, in, in Switzerland, I spoke with someone who had a very definite view about healing. I believe in healing. But they had a most definite view about healing that there should be no such thing as sickness at all amongst God's people. I was very interested because I could see that in my friend something had really taken place. No doubt about that. I began to question. I asked, for instance, about Paul's letter and asked, would you have written like that to Timothy? Take a little wine for your stomach's sake because of your oft sickness? I said, surely you would have said to him, look here, you need to trust the Lord a good deal more, Timothy. You shouldn't be having any off-sickness at all. And then I said, um, what about leaving Trophimus sick at Miletus? All this was brushed aside. And then I said, well, and I mentioned two cases, known to them and to myself, where all the faith in the world was exercised by those around them, by the loved ones, by the church, and by the person themselves. And in both cases, they died. So strong was the faith exercise that people believed that they would be raised from the dead. But they weren't. I asked, 
how do you explain it? And they came up with the most amazing theory it has ever been my displeasure to listen to. It was called delayed healing. And I was told, oh, but they were healed. When? I said, were they healed? They were healed at the point of their death. If that is truth, I don't know what truth is. It seems to me that people can become slaves to one-sided truth or partial truth to such an extent that they must become actually dishonest. How is it possible to talk about someone being healed? We're all healed then when we die. All of us. That's obvious, isn't it? I trust we don't take our sickness or illness into the glory of us. It would be a most remarkable thing if we went over onto the other side and took it all over there with us. That would be terrible. Terrible. Now, to talk of delayed healing, as there has been in some cases, where hands have been laid on a person and faith has been exercised and they hadn't been healed at that moment, but a week later, a day later, hours later, suddenly the miracle has happened. And that's delayed healing. That's truth. But to try and somehow answer facts and scriptures by a theory like that is what I call basically dishonest. That is not a genuine hallmark of the work of God. I am reminded of the time when a young man went up to Moody in one of his meetings and said to him, uh, Mr. Moody, I was, I was saved a few years ago, uh, but now, for the last three months, I have been sinlessly perfect. And Moody looked at him quietly and said, Brother, I see you're a married man. Would you bring your wife tomorrow evening? I'd like ten minutes talk. <laughs> and the man vanished and never came back again to a meeting. <laughs> That's all Moody said. Sometimes, you see, we're forced into a position where in our heart we know it's not true. And yet, somehow, we've got to be dishonest with ourselves and with others. Well, I mention that once more. All these wonderful men, they have come in, and women, they've come into an experience of the Lord. You take Madame Guillon in what we call quietism. She believed in just being quiet sitting still on a chair with hands folded for an hour or two on end, and she came into such an experience of God in that way that has been a miracle to all succeeding generations. And the same with the Quakers. We made the evangelicals tend sometimes to despise Quakers. They were godly and wonderful people. And yet, you see, you had those on one side, you've got the early Methodists with all their noise and excitement and loud singing on the other side. Here you have two varieties, as it were, of people almost, and yet both in the end, those early Methodists and those early Quakers and those early quietists really knew God. What would you do without Ter Stegen's hymn? Without the hymns of the friends? Without Madame Guillaume's life and testimony and him, what would you do without Charles Wesley? And yet these dear brothers and sisters are on different, different sides almost of the fence in teaching, and yet in experience they're not. They have come by different ways to the same Christ-likeness. 
Well, I mention these things to you. I would like also to add, and I think we shall have to close here, um, another point, and that is the building up of the body of Christ. The scriptures I would just give to you are 1 Corinthians 14, 12 and 26. I will not read it. I think you know them well. It's the little phrase, all things be done unto building up. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 and verse 26. And Romans 14, from verse 17. I will read that. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he that herein serveth Christ is well-pleasing to God and approved of men. So then let us follow after the things which make for peace and things whereby we may build one another up. Every true experience of the Lord should result in the increase of his body. It should result in more positive contribution, a more living witness, more faithful and loving service. And it should result in the well-being of the whole family of God and the salvation into that family of unsaved people. This is another genuine hallmark of the uh, work of God. If our experience results only in personal exhibitionism or personal aggrandizement or glory or gain, we can be certain that we're missing the mark. In fact, that somehow or other our experience has been diverted from the path we were meant to tread in. Or again, if I may put it this way, anything that makes for division, that makes for faction, that makes for parties, is not of God. The devil is a path master at turning things that really are of God into such a path that they become the means by which the saints are divided. And isn't church history filled with such divisions? filled with division. Things that have begun with God, which have then become the very instrument and vehicle for division and faction. This should not be. The Holy Spirit is the guardian and custodian of unity. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, we are told it is the spirit of unity. The unity of the spirit that we are to give diligence to keep in the bond of peace. And in James 3 and in um, verse 14 we read something which has always arrested me. James 3 verse 14 If ye have bitter jealousy and faction in your heart glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom is not a wisdom that cometh down from above but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where jealousy and faction are, there is confusion and every vile deed. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace for them that make peace. Is it not a hallmark of every true work and experience of God that there is something pure about it, something peaceable about it, 
something that want to, wants to include all in, something that's without partiality or without hypocrisy, something that follows after peace and sows the seed of peace. This is again the true hallmark of the world of the work of God. Well, we could say so much. We could say so much. So often a real experience of the Lord becomes the means of division. Here is someone, they come into an experience of what we call holiness. And immediately, immediately they take a superior position. They feel everyone else is of the flesh. All the others are poor, immature, little Christians. We must leave them. We must go on. We are the elite spiritually. We are the spiritually mature. So you leave all the babies and the problems and the difficulties and go off into a lovely rest home spiritually where you live the rest of your life getting on each other's nerves in a spiritual atmosphere. This is the kind of thing that so often happens. So often. You've only got to look back in church history, look back into the history of the last hundred years. And you'll find it again and again and again. No, we must be very careful of that kind of thing. Let's be very wary indeed of anything at all that uh, somehow or other would come in and uh, divide. We can, you know, in any experience we can become superior. We can feel we've got it. They have it. I have been blessed. They have. We can become critical of the others. This is not right. It's not right. Every time we have something of the Lord, we should be brought so low that everyone else seems to be higher. Even when they haven't had the exact same blessing and experience. And somehow or other, we've got to touch them in love and go on with them. It's a wonderful secret to know what it is as Brother Nee once put it, not to shout about an experience as soon as you've got it. Deep calleth unto deep, only because it's hidden. Well, we've said quite a lot about those marks. The time's gone, we've just got three minutes with that. How can we draw it all to a conclusion? We've said that this work of God we can, these hallmarks, Christ-centeredness, the fruit of the Spirit, a practical realization in our life and experience of what is ours in Christ, building up on the body of Christ. I think we should round it all up by saying this, that every real, true experience, further experience of the Lord, should push us on in the end to more of Him and not arrest us and make us settle down as if we've finally arrived. Paul says in Philippians 3 that he goes on because he says, I must win Christ. But we might say to Paul, Paul, you're at the end of your experience. There's only a few more years before you go to be with the Lord and you are talking as if you've got nothing. The great Paul, he's written the Roman letter. He's written one and two Corinthians. He's written quite a few of the Galatian letter and, and quite a lot else. And now, Paul, you 
say that you count it all but refuse that you may win Christ, that you may know him? We might say, Paul, if any man knows Christ, you're the man. No, he says, do you know? Every successive experience I've had of the Lord has made me realize how little I am and how much more I need. And this is the real test of spiritual experience. We shall never become self-sufficient. We shall never become complete in ourselves and feel, we've got it, we've got it, got everything. Never. We shall instead have an experience and for a while we shall live in the glory and the fullness and the life of it. And then, as sure as night follows day, gradually the life will run out and gradually we shall simmer down and gradually we shall face problems and then we find we've got to go on. I think you've all heard the experience of the old man many years ago. An old man amongst the Methodists. When he was a young man, he had a wonderful experience. As he grew old, he used to love to recount his experience. He called it the blessed experience. And as he got older, he tended to forget. So he wrote it down and kept it in the attic. And every time people used to come, he used to send someone up to the attic, to the, the old storeroom up in the top of the house, to fetch what he called my blessed experience and they used to go up and bring down grandpa's blessed experience and the old man from what he had written of those years ago relive the glories of his blessed experience years and years before there came a day when he was an old man and he sent his little granddaughter upstairs to fetch the blessed experience and the little girl came back in tears and she said granddad granddad the rats have eaten your blessed experience. <laughs> but you know, so are many of us, it's so true. We can have an experience years ago and we hark back to it and we're always reliving the glories of it and somehow the very experience that was to bring us into more of Christ has become a thing that chains us to the past instead of taking us on to the future. And all the time we say 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, so many years ago, something happened and we think about it and we talk. It's a wonderful thing now and again to give you testimony. Just to recount what the Lord has done, to rehearse what he's done. It brings new life, a new release. It's an altogether different thing to be chained to something that happened years ago, out of which all the life has gone. That's not experience. We must go on. We must go on. And if anyone thinks that they can get in one experience everything they need to change and transform them and somehow they able in a moment make them ready for the kingdom that it's coming I'm afraid they're going to be sadly disillusioned Lord Jesus said blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled what did he mean? did he mean blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness before they're saved when they're saved they'll be filled? I think not. Did he mean that now and again in our Christian experience sometime we shall hunger and thirst after righteousness and we shall get filled and that's that? What does it mean? When you hunger and thirst, how many times do you hunger and thirst? Well, if you had only one meal a day, you'd hunger and thirst once a day at least. And you'd get something and after it you'd had it, you wouldn't hunger and you wouldn't thirst until tomorrow 
And so it is in spiritual experience. The Lord brings us into something more by need. Brother Watchman Nee once said something which I think is so true. And we'll leave it with you. He said, the greatest blessing God can give any man or woman is need. Think about it. The greatest blessing that God can give any man or woman is need. Because need presses them on to more of the Lord and more of the Lord and more of the Lord. And one day when you're in heaven, you'll say to the Lord, Lord, I'm so thankful thankful that I had need I would have settled down with that little experience at the very beginning if I hadn't been given more need or then I would have settled down with that wonderful experience of the cross unless I'd had more need or I would have settled down with that wonderful experience of the power of the spirit if I hadn't had more need no, it's more need and we meet the Lord and more need and we meet the Lord further and more need and we meet the Lord further now in the days to come in these months that lie ahead, may the Lord give us help, every one of us, to distinguish what is really of God from what is not, and keep us in the way, so that when God in his great grace and mercy gives us to know himself in one way or another, we do not become compromised or stilted or diverted, but may, through the, by the grace of God, go right through and utilize to the full what there is of the Lord in it. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we pray together that thou wouldst write in all our hearts the lessons, Lord, of this evening, that we may all be enabled by thy Spirit to really distinguish what is of thyself. And when, Lord, in thy grace thou dost bring us one by one, or all of us, into this experience or that of thyself and of thy fullness, to so wonderfully guard us, Lord, that all the full values, all the deep potentialities in that experience may be realized, and we may, Lord, gain much for eternity out of it. We would ask it, Lord, in thy name. Amen. Amen.